Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome, and we are happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that abortion is healthcare, that trans rights are human rights, and that black lives matter. And we stand in solidarity with you all. This week, we hit the next episode in the Chronicles of Randolph Carter with the collaboration of Lovecraft and one E. Hoffman Price. We're going to take a somewhat strange adventure, and we're going to find the next evolution in Randolph Carter's life. So, that's something to look forward to. We are also less than a month away from October when the traditional October project is put out. I've been recording all year, and I'm a few chapters away from being done with it. It follows the pattern I've been laying out since the first October project five years ago. Dracula, the house on the borderland, the Phantom of the Opera, the Haunting of Hill House. Every other year has been the novel that inspired a classic universal monster movie, and this year is one of those and will follow the trend. Stay tuned. I'm really happy with how it's coming along. Hello to brand new patron Sarah Sims. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy the Moonstone. Lastly, by the end of the year, I will definitely have two, maybe three, exciting announcements to make. The first two will come maybe by the end of the month, but I'll leave it at that for now. Lastly, lastly, because this is Lovecraft and we just can't get away from it, there is some racism in this story. The stance of the Weird Tales podcast is that racism is wrong in whatever time period it happens, whether it was common practice at that time or not. Lovecraft was wrong to be racist, period. However, I also believe that turning a blind eye or scrubbing slash editing it out of a story is to do a disservice to those who have fought against it and suffered under it. Racism is wrong, and Lovecraft et al. were wrong to include it in their stories, and if you disagree with that, maybe you need to consider various outlooks on life you may have. Thank you for listening, and let's get into it. Through the Gates of the Silver Key by E. Hoffman Price and H.P. Lovecraft 1. In a vast room hung with strangely figured auras and carpeted with Bakara rugs of impressive age and workmanship, four men were sitting around a document-strewn table. From the far corners, where odd tripods of wrought iron were now and then replenished by an incredibly aged negro in somber livery, came the hypnotic fumes of olibanum, while in a deep niche on one side there ticked a curious coffin-shaped clock whose dial bore baffling hieroglyphs and whose four hands did not move in consonance with any time system known on this planet. It was a singular and disturbing room, but well fitted to the business now at hand, for here, in the New Orleans home of this continent's greatest mystic, mathematician, and orientalist, there was, being settled at last, the estate of a scarcely less great mystic, scholar, author, and dreamer, who had vanished from the face of the earth four years before. Randolph Carter, who had all his life sought to escape from the tedium and limitations of waking reality in the beckoning vistas of dreams and fabled avenues of other dimensions, disappeared from the sight of man on the 7th of October, 1928, at the age of 54. His career had been a strange and lonely one, and there were those who inferred from his curious novels many episodes more bizarre than any in his recorded history. His association with Harley Warren, the South Carolina mystic whose studies in the primal Nakal language of the Himalayan priests had led to such outrageous conclusions, had been close. Indeed, it was he who, one mist-mad terrible night in an ancient graveyard, had seen Warren descend into a dank and nitrous vault never to emerge. Carter lived in Boston, but it was from the wild, haunted hills behind Hoary and Witch-accursed Arkham that all his forebears had come. 
and it was amid those ancient, cryptically brooding hills that he had ultimately vanished. His old servant, Parks, who died early in 1930, had spoken of the strangely aromatic and hideously carven box he had found in the attic, and of the undecipherable parchments and queerly figured silver key which that box had contained, matters of which Carter had also written to others. Carter, he said, had told him that this key had come down from his ancestors, and that it would help him to unlock the gate to his lost boyhood, and to strange dimensions and fantastic realms which he had hitherto visited only in vague, brief, and elusive dreams. Then one day Carter took the box and its contents and rode away in his car, never to return. Later on, people found the car at the side of an old, grass-grown road in the hills behind crumbling Arkham, the hills where Carter's forebears had once dwelt, and where the ruined cellar of the great Carter homestead still gaped to the sky. It was in a grove of tall elms nearby that another of the Carters had mysteriously vanished in 1781, and not far away was the half-rotted cottage where Goody Fowler, the witch, had brewed her ominous potions still earlier. The region had been settled in 1692 by fugitives from the witchcraft trials in Salem, and even now it bore a name for vaguely ominous things scarcely to be envisaged. Edmund Carter had fled from the shadow of Gallows Hill just in time, and the tales of his sorceries were many. Now, it seemed, his lone descendant had gone somewhere to join him. In the car they found the hideously carved box of fragrant wood and the parchment which no man could read. The silver key was gone, presumably with Carter. Further than that, there was no certain clue. Detectives from Boston said that the fallen timbers of the old Carter place seemed oddly disturbed, and somebody found a handkerchief on the rock-ridged, sinisterly wooded slope behind the ruins near the dreaded cave called the Snake Den. It was then that the country legends about the Snake Den gained a new vitality. Farmers whispered of the blasphemous uses to which old Edmund Carter, the wizard, had put that horrible grotto, and added later tales about the fondness which Randolph Carter himself had had for it when a boy. In Carter's boyhood, the venerable gambrel-roofed homestead was still standing and tenanted by his great-uncle Christopher. He had visited there often and had talked singularly about the snake den. People remembered what he had said about a deep fissure and an unknown inner cave beyond and speculated on the change he had shown after spending one whole memorable day in the cavern when he was nine. That was in October, too, and even after that he had seemed to have an uncanny knack at prophesying future events. It had rained late in the night that Carter vanished, and no one was quite able to trace his footprints from the car. Inside the snake den, all was amorphous liquid mud owing to copious seepage. Only the ignorant rustics whispered about the prints they thought they spied where the great elms overhang the road, and on the sinister hillside near the snake den where the handkerchief was found. Who could pay attention to whispers that spoke of stubby little tracks like those which Randolph Carter's square-toed boots made when he was a small boy? It was as crazy a notion as that other whisper, that the tracks of old Benijah Corey's peculiar, heelless boots had met the stubby little tracks in the road. Old Benijah had been the Carter's hired man when Randolph was young, but he had died thirty years ago. It must have been these whispers, plus Carter's own statement to Parks and others, that the queerly arabesque silver key would help him unlock the gate of his lost boyhood which caused a number of mystical students to declare that the missing man had actually doubled back on that trail of time and returned through 45 years to that other October day in 1883 when he had stayed in the snake den as a small boy. When he came out that night, they argued, he had somehow made the whole trip to 1928 and back, 
for did he not thereafter know of things which were to happen later? And yet he had never spoken of anything to happen after 1928. One student, an elderly eccentric of Providence, Rhode Island, who had enjoyed a long and close correspondence with Carter, had a still more elaborate theory, and believed that Carter had not only returned to boyhood, but achieved a further liberation, roving at will through the prismatic vistas of boyhood dream. After a strange vision, this man published a tale of Carter's vanishing, in which he hinted that the lost one now reigned as king on the opal throne of Elek Vad, that fabulous town of turrets atop the hollow cliffs of glass overlooking the twilight sea, wherein the bearded and finny nori build their singular labyrinths. It was this old man, Ward Phillips, who pleaded most loudly against the apportionment of Carter's estates to his heirs, all distant cousins, on the ground that he was still alive in another time dimension and might well return some day. Against him was arrayed the legal talent of one of his cousins, Ernest B. Aspinwall of Chicago, a man ten years Carter's senior, but keen as a youth in forensic battles. For four years the contest had raged, but now the time for apportionment had come, and this vast, strange room in New Orleans was to be the scene of the arrangements. It was the home of Carter's literary and financial executor, the distinguished Creole student of mysteries and Eastern antiquities, Etienne Laurent de Marigny. Carter had met de Marigny during the war when they both served in the French Foreign Legion and had at once cleaved to him because of their similar tastes and outlook. When, on a memorable joint furlough, the learned young Creole had taken the wistful Boston dreamer to Bayonne in the south of France and had shown him terrible secrets in the knighted and immemorial crypts that burrow beneath that brooding, aeon-weighted city, the friendship was forever sealed. Carter's will had named de Marigny as executor, and now that vivid scholar was reluctantly presiding over the settlement of the estate. It was sad work for him, for like the old Rhode Islander, he did not believe that Carter was dead. But what weight have the dreams of mystics against the harsh wisdom of the world? Around that table in that strange room in the old French quarter sat the men who claimed an interest in the proceedings. There had been the usual legal advertisements of the conference in papers wherever Carter's heirs were thought to live, and yet only four now sat listening to the abnormal ticking of that coffin-shaped clock which told no earthly time, and to the bubbling of the courtyard fountain beyond half-curtained, fan-lighted windows. As the, as the hours wore on, the faces of the four were half-shrouded in the curling fumes from the tripods which, piled recklessly with fuel, seemed to need less and less attention from the silently gliding and increasingly nervous old negro. There was Etienne de Marigny himself, slim, dark, handsome, mustached, and still young. Aspinwall, representing the heirs, was white-haired, apoplectic-faced, side-whiskered, and portly. Phillips, the Providence mystic, was lean, gray, long-nosed, clean-shaven, and stoop-shouldered. The fourth man was non-committal in age, lean and with a dark-bearded, singularly immobile face of very regular contour, bound with the turban of a high-caste Brahmin, and having night-black, burning, almost irisless eyes which seemed to gaze out from a vast distance behind the features. He had announced himself as the Swami Chandraputra, an adept from Benares with important information to give, and both de Marigny and Phillips, who had corresponded with him, had been quick to recognize the genuineness of his mystical pretensions. His speech had an oddly forced, hollow, metallic quality, as if the use of English taxed his vocal apparatus, 
yet his language was as easy, correct, and idiomatic as any native Anglo-Saxons. In general attire, he was the normal European civilian, but his loose clothes sat peculiarly badly on him, while his bushy black beard, eastern turban, and large white mittens gave him an air of exotic eccentricity. De Marigny, fingering the parchment found in Carter's car, was speaking. "'No, I have not been able to make anything of the parchment. Mr. Phillips here also gives it up. Colonel Churchward declares it to be not Nicol, and it looks nothing at all like the hieroglyphs on that Easter Island wooden club. The carvings on that box, though, do strongly suggest Easter Island images. The nearest thing I can recall to those parchment characters—notice how all the letters seem to hang down from horizontal word bars—is the writing in a book poor Harley Warren once had. It came from India while Carter and I were visiting him in 1919, and he would never tell us anything about it. Said it would be better if we didn't know, and hinted that it might have come originally from some place other than the earth. He took it with him in December when he went down into the vault in that old graveyard, but neither he nor the book ever came to the surface again. Some time ago I sent our friend here, the Swami Chandraputra, a memory sketch of some of those letters, and also a photostatic copy of the Carter parchment. He believes he may be able to shed light on them after certain references and consultations. But the key... Carter sent me a photograph of that. Its curious arabesques were not letters, but seemed to have belonged to the same culture tradition as the hieroglyphs on the parchment. Carter always spoke of being on the point of solving the mystery, though he never gave details. Once he grew almost poetic about the whole business. That antique silver key, he said, would unlock the successive doors that bar our free march down the mighty corridors of space and time to the very border which no man has crossed since Shaddad, with his terrific genius, built and concealed in the sands of Arabia, Petraea, the prodigious domes and uncounted minarets of thousand-pillared Irem. Half-starved dervishes, wrote Carter, and thirst-crazed nomads have returned to tell of that monumental portal, and of the hand that is sculpted above the keystone of the arch. But no man has passed and returned to say that his footprints on the garnet-strewn sands within bear witness to his visit. The key, he surmised, was that for which the cyclopean sculptured hand vainly grasps. Why Carter didn't take the parchment as well as the key, we cannot say. Perhaps he forgot it, or perhaps he forbore to take it through recollection of one who had taken a book of like characters into a vault and never returned. Or perhaps it was really immaterial to do what he wished to do. As de Marigny paused, old Mr. Phillips spoke in a harsh, shrill voice. We can know of Randolph Carter's wandering only what we dream. I have been to many strange places in dreams, and have heard many strange and significant things in Althar beyond the river sky. It does not appear that the parchment was needed, for certainly Carter re-entered the world of his boyhood dreams, and is now a king in Elak Vad. Mr. Aspinwall grew doubly apoplectic-looking as he sputtered. Can't somebody shut that old fool up? We've had enough of these moonings. The problem is to divide the property, and it's about time we got to it. For the first time, Swami Chandraputra spoke in his queerly alien voice. Gentlemen, there is more to this matter than you think. Mr. Aspinwall does not do well to laugh at the evidence of dreams. Mr. Phillips has taken an incomplete view, perhaps because he has not dreamed enough. I, myself, have done much dreaming. We in India have always done that, just as all the Carters seem to have done it. You, Mr. Aspinwall, as a maternal cousin, are naturally not a Carter. My own dreams and certain other sources of information have told me a great deal which you still find obscure. For example, 
Randolph Carter forgot that parchment, which he couldn't then decipher, yet it would have been well for him had he remembered to take it. You see, I've really learned pretty much what happened to Carter after he left his car with the silver key at sunset on that 7th of October four years ago. Aspinwall audibly sneered, but the others sat up with heightened interest. The smoke from the tripods increased, and the crazy ticking of that coffin-shaped clock seemed to fall into bizarre patterns, like the dots and dashes of some alien and insoluble telegraph message from outer space. The Hindu leaned back, half-closed his eyes, and continued in that oddly labored yet idiomatic voice, while before his audience there began to float a picture of what had happened to Randolph Carter. 2. The hills behind Arkham are full of a strange magic, something perhaps which the old wizard Edmund Carter called down from the stars and up from the crypts of Nether-earth when he fled there from Salem in 1692. As soon as Randolph Carter was back among them, he knew that he was close to one of the gates which a few audacious, abhorred, and alien-souled men have blasted through titan walls betwixt the world and the outside absolute. Here, he felt, and on this day of the year, he could carry out with success the message he had deciphered months before from the arabesques of that tarnished and incredibly ancient silver key. He knew now how it must be rotated, how it must be held up to the setting sun, and what syllables of ceremony must be intoned into the void at the ninth and last turning. In a spot as close to a dark polarity and induced gate as this, it could not fail in its primary function. Certainly he would rest that night in the lost boyhood for which he had never ceased to mourn. He got out of the car with the key in his pocket, walking uphill deeper and deeper into the shadowy core of that brooding, haunted countryside of winding road, vine-grown stone wall, black woodland, gnarled, neglected orchard, gaping windowed, deserted farmhouse, and nameless ruin. At the sunset hour, when the distant spires of Kingsport gleamed in the ruddy blaze, he took out the key and made the needed turnings and intonations. Only later did he realize how soon the ritual had taken effect. Then, in the deepening twilight, he had heard a voice out of the past, old Benijah Cory, his great-uncle's hired man. Had not old Benijah been dead for thirty years? Thirty years before when? What was time? Where had he been? Why was it strange that Benijah should be calling him on this 7th of October, 1883? Was he not out later than Aunt Martha had told him to stay? And what was this key in his blouse pocket where his little telescope given him by his father on his ninth birthday two months before, ought to be. Had he found it in the attic at home? Would it unlock the mystic pylon which his sharp eye had traced amidst the jagged rocks at the back of that inner cave behind the snake den on the hill? That was the place they always coupled with old Edmund Carter the wizard. People wouldn't go there, and nobody but him had ever noticed or squirmed through the root-choked fissure to that great black inner chamber with the pylon. Whose hands had carved that hint of a pylon out of the living rock? Old Wizard Edmonds or others that he had conjured up and commanded? That evening, little Randolph ate supper with Uncle Chris and Aunt Martha in the old gambrel-roofed farmhouse. Next morning he was up early and out through the twisted-bowed apple orchard to the upper timber lot where the mouth of the snake den lurked black and forbidding amongst grotesque, overnourished oaks. A nameless expectancy was upon him, and he did not even notice the loss of his handkerchief as he fumbled in his blouse pocket to see if the queer silver key was safe. He crawled through the dark orifice with tense, adventurous assurance, 
lighting his way with matches taken from the sitting room. In another moment, he had wriggled through the root-choked fissure at the farther end and was in the vast, unknown inner grotto whose ultimate rock wall seemed half like a monstrous and consciously shaped pylon. Before that dank, dripping wall, he stood silent and awestruck, lighting one match after another as he gazed. Was that stony bulge above the keystone of the imagined arch really a gigantic sculptured hand? Then he drew forth the silver key and made motions and intonations whose source he could only dimly remember. Was anything forgotten? He knew only that he wished to cross the barrier to the untrammeled lands of his dreams and the gulfs where all dimensions dissolve in the absolute. 3. What happened then is scarcely to be described in words. It is full of those paradoxes, contradictions, and anomalies which have no place in waking life, but which fill our more fantastic dreams and are taken as matters of course till we return to our narrow, rigid, objective world of limited causation and tridimensional logic. As the Hindu continued his tale, he had difficulty in avoiding what seemed, even more than the notion of a man transferred through the years to boyhood, an air of trivial, puerile extravagance. Mr. Aspinwall, in disgust, gave an apoplectic snort and virtually stopped listening. For the rite of the silver key, as practiced by Randolph Carter in that black, haunted cave within a cave, did not prove unavailing. From the first gesture and symbol, an aura of strange, awesome mutation was apparent, a sense of incalculable disturbance and confusion in time and space, yet one which held no hint of what we recognize as motion and duration. Imperceptibly, such things as age and location cease to have any significance whatever. The day before, Randolph Carter had miraculously leapt a gulf of years. Now there was no distinction between boy and man. There was only the entity Randolph Carter, with a certain store of images which had lost all connection with terrestrial scenes and circumstances of acquisition. A moment before, there had been an inner cave with vague suggestions of a monstrous arch and gigantic sculptured hand on the farther wall. Now there was neither cave nor absence of cave, neither wall nor absence of wall. There was only a flux of impressions, not so much visual as cerebral, amidst which the entity that was Randolph Carter experienced perceptions or registrations of all that his mind revolved on, yet without any clear consciousness of the way in which he received them. By the time the rite was over, Carter knew that he was in no region whose place could be told by Earth's geographers, and in no age whose date history could fix. For the nature of what was happening was not wholly unfamiliar to him. There were hints of it in the cryptical necotic fragments, and a whole chapter in the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazred had taken on significance when he had deciphered the designs graven on the silver key. A gate had been unlocked. Not indeed the ultimate gate, but one leading from earth and time to that extension of earth which is outside time, and from which, in turn, the ultimate gate leads fearsomely and perilously to the last void which is outside all earths, all universes, and all matter. There would be a guide, and a very terrible one, a guide who had been an entity of earth millions of years before, when man was undreamed of, and when forgotten shapes moved on a steaming planet building strange cities, among whose last crumbling ruins the earliest mammals were to play. Carter remembered that the monstrous Necronomicon had vaguely and disconcertingly adumbrated concerning that guide. "'And while there are those,' the mad Arab had written, "'who have dared to seek glimpses beyond the veil,' 
and to accept him as a guide, they would have been more prudent had they avoided commerce with him. For it is written in the book of Thoth how terrific is the price of a single glimpse. Nor may those who pass ever return, for in the vastnesses transcending our world are shapes of darkness that seize and bind. The affair that shambleth about in the night, the evil that defieth the elder sign, the herd that stand watch at the secret portal each tomb is known to have, and that thrive on that which groweth out of the tenants within, all these blacknesses are lesser than he who guardeth the gateway, he who will guide the rash one beyond all the worlds into the abyss of unnameable devourers. For he is Umrat Tawil, the most ancient one, which the scribe rendereth as the prolonged of life. Memory and imagination shape dim half-pictures with certain outlines amidst the seething chaos, but Carter knew that they were of memory and imagination only. Yet he felt that it was not chance which built these things in his consciousness, but rather some vast reality, ineffable and undimensioned, which surround him and strove to translate itself into the only symbols he was capable of grasping. For no mind of earth may grasp the extensions of shape which interweave in the oblique gulfs outside time and the dimensions we know. There floated before Carter a cloudy pageantry of shapes and scenes which he somehow linked with earth's primal aeon-forgotten past. Monstrous living things moved deliberately through vistas of fantastic handiwork that no sane dream ever held, and landscapes bore incredible vegetation and cliffs and mountains and masonry of no human pattern. There were cities under the sea, and denizens thereof, and towers in great deserts where globes and cylinders and nameless winged entities shot off into space or hurtled down out of space. All this Carter grasped, though the images bore no fixed relation to one another or to him. He himself had no stable form or position, but only such shifting hints of form and position as his whirling fancy supplied. He had wished to find the enchanted regions of his boyhood dreams, where galleys sail up the river Ukranos past the gilded spires of Thrawn, and elephant caravans tramp through perfumed jungles and cled beyond forgotten palaces with veined ivory columns that sleep lovely and unbroken under the moon. Now, intoxicated with wider visions, he scarcely knew what he sought. Thoughts of infinite and blasphemous daring rose in his mind, and he knew he would face the dreaded guide without fear, asking monstrous and terrible things of him. All at once the pageant of impressions seemed to achieve a vague kind of stabilization. There were great masses of towering stone carven into alien and incomprehensible designs and disposed according to the laws of some unknown inverse geometry. Light filtered down from a sky of no assignable color in baffling, contradictory directions and played almost sentiently over what seemed to be a curved line of gigantic hieroglyphed pedestals more hexagonal than otherwise and surmounted by cloaked, ill-defined shapes. There was another shape, too, which occupied no pedestal, but which seemed to glide or float over the cloudy, floor-like lower level. It was not exactly permanent in outline, but held transient suggestions of something remotely preceding or paralleling the human form, though half as large again as an ordinary man. It seemed to be heavily cloaked like the shapes on the pedestals, with some neutral-colored fabric, and Carter could not detect any eye holes through which it might gaze. 
probably it did not need to gaze, for it seemed to belong to an order of being far outside the merely physical in organization and faculties. A moment later, Carter knew that this was so, for the shape had spoken to his mind without sound or language. And though the name it uttered was a dreaded and terrible one, Randolph Carter did not flinch in fear. Instead, he spoke back equally without sound or language and made those obeisances which the hideous Necronomicon had taught him to make. For this shape was nothing less than that which all the world has feared since Lomar rose out of the sea and the winged ones came to earth to teach the elder lore to man. It was indeed the frightful guide and guardian of the gate, Umarat Tawil, the ancient one, which the scribe rendereth the prolonged of life. The guide knew, as he knew all things, of Carter's quest and coming, and that this seeker of dreams and secrets stood before him unafraid. There was no horror or malignity in what he radiated, and Carter wondered for a moment whether the mad Arab's terrific blasphemous hints and extracts from the Book of Thoth might not have come from envy and a baffled wish to do what was now about to be done. Or perhaps the guide reserved his horror and malignity for those who feared. As the radiations continued, Carter mentally interpreted them in the form of words. I am indeed that most ancient one, said the guide, of whom you know. We have awaited you, the ancient ones and I. You are welcome, even though long delayed. You have the key and have unlocked the first gate. Now the ultimate gate is ready for your trial. If you fear, you need not advance. You may still go back unharmed the way you came. But if you choose to advance... The pause was ominous, but the radiations continued to be friendly. Carter hesitated not a moment, for a burning curiosity drove him on. I will advance, he radiated back, and I accept you as my guide. At this reply, the guide seemed to make a sign by certain motions of his robe, which may or may not have involved the lifting of an arm or some homologous member. A second sign followed, and from his well-learned lore, Carter knew that he was, at last, very close to the ultimate gate. The light now changed to another inexplicable color, and the shapes on the quasi-hexagonal pedestals became more clearly defined. As they sat more erect, their outlines became more like those of men, though Carter knew that they could not be men. Upon their cloaked heads there now seemed to rest tall, uncertainly colored miters, strangely suggestive of those on certain nameless figures chiseled by a forgotten sculptor along the living cliffs of a high forbidden mountain in Tartary, while grasped in certain folds of their swathings were long scepters whose carven heads bodied forth a grotesque and archaic mystery. Carter guessed what they were, whence they came, and whom they served, and guessed, too, the price of their service. But he was still content, for at one mighty venture he was to learn all. Damnation, he reflected, is but a word bandied about by those whose blindness leads them to condemn all who can see, even with a single eye. He wondered at the vast conceit of those who had babbled of the malignant ancient ones, as if they could pause from their everlasting dreams to wreak a wrath upon mankind. As well, he thought, might a mammoth pause to visit frantic vengeance on an angle-worm. Now the whole assemblage on the vaguely hexagonal pillars was greeting him with a gesture of those oddly carven scepters 
and radiating a message which he understood. "'We salute you, most ancient one, and you, Randolph Carter, whose daring has made you one of us.'" Carter saw now that one of the pedestals was vacant, and a gesture of the most ancient one told him it was reserved for him. He saw also another pedestal, taller than the rest, and at the center of the oddly curved line, neither semicircle nor ellipse, parabola nor hyperbola, which they formed. This, he guessed, was the guide's own throne. Moving and rising in a manner hardly definable, Carter took his seat, and as he did so, he saw that the guide had likewise seated himself. Gradually and mistily, it became apparent that the most ancient one was holding something, some object clutched in the outflung folds of his robe as if for the sight, or what answered for sight, of the cloaked companions. It was a large sphere, or apparent sphere, of some obscurely iridescent metal, and as the guide put it forward, a low, pervasive half-impression of sound began to rise and fall in intervals which seemed to be rhythmic even though they followed no rhythm of earth. There was a suggestion of chanting, or what human imagination might interpret as chanting. Presently the quasi-sphere began to grow luminous, and as it gleamed up into a cold, pulsating light of unassignable color, Carter saw that its flickerings conformed to the alien rhythm of the chant. Then all the mitered, scepter-bearing shapes on the pedestals commenced a slight, curious swaying in the same inexplicable rhythm, while nimbuses of unclassifiable light resembling that of the quasi-sphere played round their shrouded heads. The Hindu paused in his tail and looked curiously at the tall, coffin-shaped clock with the four hands and hieroglyph dial, whose crazy ticking followed no known rhythm of earth. "'You, Mr. de Marigny,' he suddenly said to his learned host, "'he suddenly said to his learned host, do not need to be told the particular alien rhythm to which those cowled shapes on the hexagonal pillars chanted and nodded. You are the only one else in America who has had a taste of the outer extension. That clock, I suppose it was sent to you by the yogi poor Harley Warren used to talk about. The seer who said that he alone of living men had been to Yan Ho, the hidden legacy of sinister Aeonold Leng, and had borne certain things away from that dreadful and forbidden city. I wonder how many of its subtler properties you know. If my dreams and readings be correct, it was made by those who knew much of the first gateway. But let me go on with my tale. At last, continued the Swami, the swaying and the suggestion of chanting ceased. The, lam the lambent nimbuses around the now drooping and motionless heads faded away, while the cloaked shapes slumped curiously on their pedestals. The quasi-sphere, however, continued to pulsate with inexplicable light. Carter felt that the Ancient Ones were sleeping as they had been when he first saw them, and he wondered out of what cosmic dreams his coming had wakened them. Slowly there filtered into his mind the truth that this strange chanting ritual had been one of instruction, and that the companions had been chanted by the Most Ancient One into a new and peculiar kind of sleep, in order that their dreams might open the ultimate gate to which the Silver Key was a passport. He knew that in the profundity of this deep sleep they were contemplating unplumbed vastnesses of utter and absolute outsideness with which the earth had nothing to do, and that they were to accomplish that which his presence had demanded. The guide did not share this sleep, but seemed still to be giving instructions in some subtle, soundless way. Evidently, he was implanting images of those things which he wished the companions to dream, 
and Carter knew that as each of the Ancient Ones pictured the prescribed thought, there would be born the nucleus of a manifestation visible to his own earthly eyes. When the dreams of all the shapes had achieved a oneness, that manifestation would occur, and everything he required be materialized through concentration. He had seen such things on Earth, in India, where the combined projected will of a circle of adepts can make a thought take tangible substance, and in Hori Atlanat, of which few men dare speak. Just what the ultimate gate was, and how it was to be passed, Carter could not be certain, but a feeling of tense expectancy surged over him. He was conscious of having a kind of body and of holding the fateful silver key in his hand. The masses of towering stone opposite him seemed to possess the evenness of a wall toward the center of which his eyes were irresistibly drawn, and then suddenly he felt the mental currents of the most ancient one cease to flow forth. For the first time, Carter realized how terrific utter silence, mental and physical, may be. The earlier moments had never failed to contain some perceptible rhythm, if only the faint cryptical pulse of the Earth's dimensional extension, but now the hush of the abyss seemed to fall upon everything. Despite his intimations of body, he had no audible breath, and the glow of Umarat Tawil's quasi-sphere had grown petrifiedly fixed and unpulsating. A potent nimbus, brighter than those which had played round the head of the shapes, blazed frozenly over the shrouded skulls of the terrible guide. A dizziness assailed Carter, and his sense of lost orientation waxed a thousandfold. The strange light seemed to hold the quality of the most impenetrable blacknesses heaped upon blacknesses, while about the Ancient Ones, so close on their pseudo-hexagonal thrones, there hovered an air of the most stupefying remoteness. Then he felt himself wafted into immeasurable depths, with waves of perfumed warmth lapping against his face. It was as if he floated in a torrid, rose-tinctured sea, a sea of drugged wine whose waves broke foaming against shores of brazen fire. A great fear clutched him as he half saw that vast expanse of surging sea lapping against its far-off coast. But the moment of silence was broken. The surgings were speaking to him in a language that was not of physical sound or articulate words. The man of truth is beyond good and evil, intoned a voice that was not a voice. The man of truth has ridden to all is one. The man of truth has learnt that illusion is the only reality and that substance is an impostor. And now, in that rise of masonry to which his eyes had been so irresistibly drawn, there appeared the outline of a titanic arch, not unlike that which he thought he had glimpsed so long ago in that cave within a cave, on the far, unreal surface of the three-dimensional earth. He realized that he had been using the silver key, moving it in accord with an unlearnt and instinctive ritual closely akin to that which had opened the inner gate. That rose-drunken sea which lapped his cheeks was, he realized, no more or less than the adamantine mass of the solid wall yielding before his spell and the vortex of thought with which the Ancient Ones had aided his spell. Still guided by instinct and blind determination, he floated forward and through the ultimate gate. Four. Randolph Carter's advance through that cyclopean bulk of abnormal masonry was like a dizzy precipitation through the measureless gulfs between the stars. From a great distance he felt triumphant, godlike surges of deadly sweetness, and after that the rustling of great wings and impressions of sounds like the chirpings and murmurings of object unknown on Earth or in the solar system. 
Glancing backward, he saw not one gate alone, but a multiplicity of gates, at some of which clamored forms he strove not to remember. And then, suddenly, he felt a greater terror than that which any of the forms could give him, a terror which he could not flee because it was connected with himself. Even the first gateway had taken something of stability from him, leaving him uncertain about his bodily form and about his relationship to the mistily defined objects around him, but it had not disturbed his sense of unity. He had still been Randolph Carter, a fixed point in the dimensional seething. Now, beyond the ultimate gateway, he realized in a moment of consuming fright that he was not one person, but many persons. He was in many places at the same time. On Earth, on October 7th, 1883, a little boy named Randolph Carter was leaving the snake den in the hushed evening light and running down the rocky slope and through the twisted bowed orchard toward his Uncle Christopher's house in the hills beyond Arkham. Yet at that same moment, which was also somehow in the earthly year of 1928, a vague shadow, not less Randolph Carter, was sitting on a pedestal among the ancient ones in Earth's transdimensional extension. Here, too, was a third Randolph Carter in the unknown and formless cosmic abyss beyond the ultimate gate, and elsewhere in a chaos of scenes whose infinite multiplicity and monstrous diversity brought him close to the brink of madness, were a limitless confusion of beings which he knew were as much himself as the local manifestation now beyond the ultimate gate. There were Carters in settings belonging to every known and suspected age of Earth's history, and to remoter ages of earthly entity transcending knowledge, suspicion, and credibility. Carters of forms both human and non-human, vertebrate and invertebrate, conscious and mindless, animal and vegetable, and more, there were Carters having nothing in common with earthly life, but moving outrageously amidst backgrounds of other planets and systems and galaxies and cosmic continua. Spores of eternal life drifting from world to world, universe to universe, yet all equally himself. Some of the glimpses recalled dreams, both faint and vivid, single and persistent, which he had had through the long years since he first began to dream, and a few possessed a haunting, fascinating, and almost horrible familiarity which no earthly logic could explain. Faced with this realization, Randolph Carter reeled in the clutch of supreme horror, horror such as had not been hinted even at the climax of that hideous night when two had ventured into an ancient and abhorred necropolis under a waning moon, and only one had emerged. No death, no doom, no anguish can arouse the surpassing despair which flows from a loss of identity. Merging with nothingness is peaceful oblivion, but to be aware of existence and yet to know that one is no longer a definite being distinguished from other beings, that one no longer has a self, that is the nameless summit of agony and dread. He knew that there had been a Randolph Carter of Boston, yet could not be sure whether he, the fragment or facet of an earthly entity beyond the ultimate gate, had been that one or some other. His self had been annihilated, and yet he, if indeed there could, in view of that utter nullity of individual existence, be such a thing as he was equally aware of being in some inconceivable way a legion of selves. 
It was as though his body had been suddenly transformed into one of those many-limbed and many-headed effigies sculptured in Indian temples, and he contemplated the aggregation in a bewildered attempt to discern which was the original and which the additions, if indeed, supremely monstrous thought, there were any original as distinguished from other embodiments. Then, in the midst of these devastating reflections, Carter's beyond-the-gate fragment was hurled from what had seemed the nadir of horror to black-clutching pits of a horror still more profound. This time it was largely external, a force or personality which at once confronted and surrounded and pervaded him, and which, in addition to its local presence, seemed also to be a part of himself and likewise to be coexistent with all time and coterminous with all space. There was no visual image, yet the sense of entity and the awful concept of combined localism, identity, and infinity lent a paralyzing terror beyond anything which any Carter fragment had hitherto deemed capable of existing. In the face of that awful wonder, the quasi-Carter forgot the horror of destroyed individuality. It was an all-in-one and one-in-all of limitless being and self, not merely a thing of one space-time continuum, but allied to the ultimate animating essence of existence's whole unbound sweep, the last utter sweep which has no confines and which outreaches fancy and mathematics alike. It was perhaps that which certain secret cults of Earth have whispered of as Yogg-Sothoth, and which has been a deity under other names, that which the crustaceans of Yugoth worship as the Beyond One, and which the vaporous brains of the spiral nebulae know by an untranslatable sign. Yet in a flash, the Carter facet realized how slight and fractional all these conceptions are. And now, the being was addressing the Carter facet in prodigious waves that smote and burned and thundered, a concentration of energy that blasted its recipient with well-nigh unendurable violence and that followed, with certain definite variations, the singular, unearthly rhythm which had marked the chanting and swaying of the Ancient Ones and the flickering of the monstrous lights in that baffling region beyond the first gate. It was as though suns and worlds and universes had converged upon one point whose very position in space they had conspired to annihilate with an impact of resistless fury. But amidst the greater terror, one lesser terror was diminished, for the searing waves appeared somehow to isolate the beyond-the-gate Carter from his infinity of duplicates, to restore, as it were, a certain amount of the illusion of identity. After a time, the hearer began to translate the waves into speech forms known to him, and his sense of horror and oppression waned. Fright became pure awe, and what had seemed blasphemously abnormal seemed now only ineffably majestic. Randolph Carter, it seemed to say, my manifestations on your planet's extension, the Ancient Ones, have sent you, as one who would lately have returned to small lands of dream which he had lost, yet who, with greater freedom, has risen to greater and nobler desires and curiosities. You wish to sail up Golden Okranos, to search out forgotten ivory cities in orchid-heavy cled, and to reign on the opal throne of Elek Vad, whose fabulous towers and numberless domes rise mighty toward a single red star in a firmament alien to your earth and to all matter. Now, 
With the passing of two gates, you wish loftier things. You would not flee like a child from a scene disliked to a dream beloved, but would plunge like a man into that last and inmost of secrets which lies behind all scenes and dreams. What you wish I have found good, and I am ready to grant that which I have granted eleven times only to beings of your planet, five times only to those you call men or those resembling them. I am ready to show you the ultimate mystery, to look on which is to blast a feeble spirit. Yet before you gaze full at that last and first of secrets, you may still wield a free choice and return, if you will, through the two gates, with the veil still unrent before your eyes. And that is the end of the first part of the story. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. Every dollar goes back into the show and helps support things like hosting fees, guest readers, and the 1-8 scale Star Destroyer Lego model made out of solid gold Lego bricks. You can't look at it too long because the light reflecting off of it will blind you, but it is a beauty. Thanks to Sarah Sims, Melissa Boudreau, and Ambervale for your support. We will be back next week with the conclusion of the story. In the meantime, please go and get vaccinated for everything you are eligible for. Make a racist's life just as vastly uncomfortable as you can. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.